0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them.
1: It's a sound you instantly recognize, and one you hope isn't coming to your location. It's the wailing siren of an ambulance responding to an emergency. In the national park system, during the height of summer, the sound can be very familiar. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In this week's show, we're going to sit down with a paramedic who triggers the siren when he jumps into his ambulance in response to a call for help. It's a conversation that will leave you with a better understanding and appreciation for the vital role these individuals serve in seeing that National Park visitors who are injured or come down with a debilitating illness receive prompt care and are able, if possible, to resume their vacation.
0: The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private is the newest sponsor of the National Parks Traveler. It is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. This month, the credit union is celebrating 86 years in business. It was first started by Department of Interior employees and eventually opened its membership to like-minded groups. Its ultimate goal is to be your natural resource for financial services. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit interiorfcu.org to find other ways to join. Federally insured by NCUA.
1: If you've spent enough time in a national park, you've no doubt heard them. Emergency sirens, either from a fire truck or, more likely, an ambulance. Rushing to the scene of an accident, or in some cases an incident involving wildlife, These vehicles not only are outfitted with an amazing array of first aid equipment, but professionals trained to save your life. Kevin Grange has worked as a seasonal paramedic in Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Grand Teton National Parks. It's a job that gave him a key and motivating purpose in life, in which he shares with us in a new book, Wild Rescues, A Paramedic's Extreme Adventures in Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Grand Teton. Welcome to The Traveler, Kevin.
2: Happy to be here, Kurt, and I uh, really appreciate you having me on the show.
1: Oh, I think you'll give us some interesting uh, insights into the, the life of a paramedic and uh, some wisdoms that uh, park visitors can take with them the next time they go to a park. But you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. You were, you were living in California, and as I recall, at the age of 35, you decided you wanted to be a paramedic, but you found uh, soon thereafter that you weren't alone in wanting to land that job after taking the necessary coursework?
2: Yeah, around the age of 35, I uh, kind of switched career tracks from real estate and went to paramedic school. And uh, that came out of a motivation just to, you know, help and serve people in a more direct way. And uh, as far as being a paramedic, I love sort of the blend of critical thinking skills um, with sort of the hands-on treatment of the patient. Every day is different and it's just a lot of fun to be out there helping people on the worst day of their
1: life. One November day, um, you were camping in Yosemite with your parents and your career path kind of clarified itself, so to speak.
2: Exactly, I was trying to get hired with a fire department in Los Angeles. And the thing down there is, you know, each department will have 10,000 applicants, 5,000 applicants, and I wasn't really getting hired so i was sort of at a crossroads in this new career path and my parents and i were camping at yosemite and a freak snowstorm came in so we were playing cards in their rv and i saw an ambulance drive by and i'm a big fan of joseph campbell uh the great mythologist and writer and that was sort of like the call to adventure it opened up this whole new world i hadn't really thought about which was emergency services within our national parks and from then on, I, uh, you know, pursued to find out how you apply and how you get hired and, you know, make that dream a reality.
1: What well, was uh, the hiring process uh, more difficult than than uh, with the Los Angeles uh, agencies you're looking to sign on with, or was it uh, more streamlined and easier?
2: It was uh, challenging in d- different ways. You didn't necessarily have the number of candidates Uh, that you had in Los Angeles, there weren't, you know, five or 10,000 people applying for a seasonal paramedic position, but navigating uh, the website USA jobs has its own sort of unique intricacies. And um, you have to design your resume in a certain way that kind of works with the computer. Um, And then just, I think a lot of it was the hiring managers at these parks, they wanted a certain skill set. And You know, competency just because it is very remote and rural medicine. So it did take me about a year of applying uh, through USA Jobs until I finally landed a position at Old Faithful and Yellowstone National Park. How do they
1: test your um, proficiency in medical rescue, so to speak? I mean, before they hire you, I mean, are you hired on kind of like a probationary basis?
2: You are. Yeah, there's a questionnaire on USA Jobs and. I think the initial round is screened by a computer. And so it's, it's a bit tricky because you, you want to let them know you're competent, but obviously you're a humble applicant. And so you don't want to overstate your skills, but at the same time, if you don't say you're an expert and say CPR or first aid, the computer is not going to pick you up and kind of put you through the next round of hiring. Um, so once you do Pass that first round, it goes into like a phone interview with the hiring manager and then, you know, they do a background check and drug screen. And then once you're hired, you go to the park and there's an EMS refresher that begins the season. And that's with all the seasonal employees, the permanent. And that's like one week of uh, emergency simulations, some high stress skills labs, some exams, And then you have a field training period in which they're seeing how you work out there in the field. And some people don't pass it. And then luckily I was fortunate enough to, you know, pass the EMS refresher and, you know, get full time as far as, uh, Yellowstone.
1: Yeah. You mentioned in the book, um, going through some of that refresher course and then, um, being quizzed, if you will, by by some of the um, park service personnel there and Dr. Luann Freer, um, she kind of had you nervous for a minute with uh, some of the questions she posed to you and some of your answers.
2: Yes, Dr. Freer is the pioneering woman who started the ER at uh, Everest Base Camp, and she is you know one of the world's foremost experts on wilderness medicine and high altitude medicine. So it was certainly daunting. Um, doing this skills lab or verbal scenario with her. Um, She's super friendly and uh, obviously very knowledgeable, but just sitting down in front of her and the EMS supervisor at Yellowstone was definitely a daunting process. And it was a verbal exam, so they presented a case and I had to kind of walk them through my treatment. And what I learned is how much, when you're working in a national park, medicine is only you know, a 10th or fifteenth percent of the call. A lot of it's the logistics of transport times and transport decisions. Do you call a helicopter? Do you drive to one of the medical clinics in the park? Or do you start driving towards the exit of the park, towards more definitive care? So there's really many aspects to being a wilderness medical provider than just the medicine.
1: Yeah, I imagine uh, the, the first couple times you had to call in a helicopter, it, it kind of gave you pause because of the the cost associated with that. And are you making the right decision, or is it unnecessary? I mean, that's that's got to be uh, take a few times to get used to making that call and, and being certain about it.
2: Definitely, I like to say that our treatment protocols are written in black and white on the page, but EMS is sort of a hazy shade of gray. Um, oftentimes patients are presenting with a number of different complaints and it's all about which direction they're trending are they getting worse are they getting better and there's many factors Um, one unique thing in the national parks is especially yellowstone there's a lot of people on these bus tours and they're going from yellowstone to grand teton and they've saved up for this trip for their whole life they've dreamed of it And, you know, you taking them to the hospital means a lot of times that they're off off the bus tour. And that's the end of the trip, the end of the dream. So we would get a fair amount of resistance, good natured resistance. People, they don't want to leave their dream. But in certain cases, we have to explain to them that, hey, your life's in danger. You need to go to the hospital right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, about midway through the book, there was a section that really caught my attention. In in short, it was about the spontaneous manner in which paramedics work. You're not preparing for just one type of emergency or injury. You have to be prepared for just about anything. Um, As you wrote, We had no idea which of our skills would be tested, or when a traumatic call's horrifying sights and sounds would assault our psyches, leaving invisible but permanent tattoos we didn't know when we would confront our own Dawn Wall. The Dawn Wall, of course, might be the most challenging climbing route in Yosemite on El Capitan. How did you cope with that aspect of the job, not knowing exactly what emergency you might find yourself dealing with?
2: Yeah, great question. Uh, at the time I was at Yosemite, Kevin Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell, two renowned climbers, were attempting the Dawn Wall, which they completed. So we would go out every afternoon and watch them across from uh, El Capitan. And it sort of made me realize that, you know, like Navy SEALs, they know when they're going to insert on a mission, a sports team, say a football team, they know when the Super Bowl is yet EMS providers, we never know when that call is going to come in. And we also don't know if, is it going to be a medical call, a trauma, is it going to be a pediatric patient? And so, How we deal with that is we're always training and we're always, I like the idea of training, not until you can get it right, but training until you can't get it wrong. So every day we're reviewing our protocols, doing, you know, practice scenarios with one another and just kind of staying fresh. So when that call comes in at 3 a.m., we're ready to perform no matter what type of call it is. Yeah. Yeah. Did you
1: find that even though you took more than 1500 hours of medical courses to prepare for being a paramedic, that there were some situations that that classroom work just couldn't prepare you for?
2: Definitely. Yeah. The transition from the book knowledge to sort of the street smarts and in the National Park Service, just sort of the trail smarts of dealing with all that the other stuff as far as running an EMS call whether it's um, getting the bison off the landing zone so we can land the helicopter or you know again making that transport decision do we go to the clinic at Old Faithful or do we drive out towards West Yellowstone towards the hospital do we call a helicopter or not so yeah the job is always challenging and how I coped with that is I was often paired with a mentor uh, who'd been there for a few years And a lot of the permanent law enforcement rangers also work as EMTs and paramedics. So they were great about being there if we had questions and we sort of all worked together as a team to provide the best patient care.
1: Did you ever find yourself on a a helicopter going to a a remote location or or in the Tetons uh, into the mountains to um, respond to a case?
2: I didn't personally get on a helicopter at Grand Teton, they have the Jenny Lake Rangers who are, you know, world renowned. And then at Yosemite, they have Yosemite Search and Rescue. So they would sort of handle those calls and bring them to the ambulance, at which point I would take over. Um, I did get out on a number of uh, search and rescues where we had to, you know, run up the trail and treat a patient and evacuate them using like a wheeled litter, which, you know, a friend of mine Uh, John Politis, who's very well known, he's a Jenny Lake Ranger in the summer. He often jokes that, you know, the short haul of the patient and the EMS provider dangling from the helicopter kind of gets all the glory. But it's actually the wheel litter and hiking in four or five miles to reach the patient and then evacuating them. That's really the hardest job just because it's, you know, so taxing physically and, um, you know, you're with the patient for multiple hours. And of course, you
1: you don't have your ambulance right there where you can reach in and get the supplies you need. You got to carry as much as you think you'll need.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's that element of just austere medicine. And if you want to take everything, your backpack's going to weigh like 80 pounds, which is going to slow you down. So you really sort of had to think critically about what uh, equipment and medications you might need and where the patient is and how you're gonna get them out of there. Um, And one unique thing I learned was, a lot of times the medical side of the call might be done within the first 10 or 15 minutes. You know, you start that IV, you give them some pain medication. And I really learned that following that, some of the best treatment you can make is just talking to your patient, making that personal connection. And um, you know, that lowers the workload on their heart, the patient starts to relax. So there is sort of that element of like the healing power of hope, which I learned. And one of the things I love most about EMS is just the amazing people that you meet. And of course, in our national parks, they come from all over the world and all walks of life. So that was, you know, a great experience as far as working with the National Park Service.
1: Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, I wish I had uh, been more aware of the opportunities with the Park Service early on in my career. Um, We're talking today with Kevin Grange. He's the author of a new book, Wild Rescues, A Paramedic's Extreme Adventures in Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Grand Teton, where he served as a paramedic, seasonal paramedic during the the summer busy seasons. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information, or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PotreroGroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O Group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org.
1: Okay, we're back with Kevin Grange, a seasonal paramedic in the national park system. Um, Most recently at Grand Teton National Park, he has a new book out, Wild Rescues, A Paramedic's Extreme Adventures in Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Grand Teton. Kevin, those three parks, um, iconic parks in their own right, three different parks, very different in some ways. Did they each present you with different types of patient cases?
2: They did, definitely. Yellowstone... The park's so big that a lot of people, and there's so much to see, a lot of people don't, I think 99% don't venture within a half mile from the road. And that's not necessarily a lack of interest, it's just there's so much to see. There's geysers, there's waterfalls, there's wildlife. So the patients I saw in Yellowstone, uh, a lot of bus tours, and then there's also a lot of big historic hotels in Yellowstone, the Old Faithful Lodge, the Lake Hotel. So there I saw a lot of like very complex medical patients who would, you know, travel to Yellowstone. And a lot of times on these bus tours, people are on vacation. So they want to take a vacation from their medications or they're taking a water pill, but they don't want to, you know, have to pee on the bus tour. So they stop taking the pill. Um, Then they arrive at Old Faithful Lodge or Lake Hotel, which, you know, the elevation's over 7,000 feet and sort of their pre-existing conditions combined with the altitude um, kind of all hit them at once. Um, And so we would see a lot of these very complex medical patients who might have, you know, cardiac problems and diabetes and some respiratory. Um, And then you also have the altitude. So it's just sort of a investigation as to what's going on, what's causing it and, you know, making the best treatment and transport decision. So that was Yellowstone. Yosemite is different in that I would say it's a more active visitor. People are getting out on the trails more and hiking. You know, it's one of the best places to rock climb in the world. So we did have a lot of uh, rock climbing incidents and accidents. And then, you know, you're fairly close to some major city areas, Sacramento, San Francisco. So we would see that urban element. I would say I saw more patients, you know, using drugs in Yosemite. I think that comes from sort of that urban influence. And a lot of the law enforcement contacts, you know, you would hear it coming back as, hey, this patient has a warrant or... So it was, there was that urban element there. And as far as Grand Teton, it was sort of a great blend of the two. Um, again, we have, I think, three million tourists coming through Grand Teton and Jackson Hole. So we, and we are above 6,000 feet. So we would see those complicated medical patients, but then there, they're also getting out on the trails. So we would have those search and rescues. So Grand Teton sort of exists in that wildland urban interface. We have the airport right here. So that was sort of a crystallization of the two previous parks. And that forms the third part of my book. And sort of the challenge there is just being able to operate in sort of that wilderness setting, but also that urban setting and kind of go back and forth between those two worlds.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, um, Yellowstone and Grand Teton have more wildlife, if you will, than, uh, than Yosemite. I mean, you've got bison, you've got grizzly bears, you got wolves, moose, et cetera, et cetera. Were wildlife encounters a large part of the job or, or were they the the rare instance?
2: They were actually a huge part of the job and, we think the best medicine is prevention. And so a lot of times it, uh, old faithful, I was out there on the boardwalks and the trails, um, just preventing people from going up to the bison. Cause you know, a lot of people will get as close to them as they can. And so, um, I think there were five bison gorings my last summer in Yellowstone. They actually all happened on my day off. So I didn't respond to any, um, so yeah, we're dealing with the wildlife. Um, we did have like a motorcyclist who hit a bison. There were a few, you know, bear maulings. Um, again, I wasn't the first responder on those. Definitely in uh, Yellowstone and Grand Teton, wildlife is always a factor. You know, whether I'm working a bear bear jam. You know, the historic bear three ninety nine with her cubs. Um, she loves to just feed right beside the road. So many days I'm out there directing traffic. If it's not a human-wildlife interaction, it's us managing the wildlife and the visitor on the roadway or on the trail. Interesting. Interesting. Now, how did you, at the end of a shift,
1: purge your memory, so to speak, of what you encountered and dealt with? I mean, certainly a lot of them are, are, are routine and, and not not that visibly shaking um, type of encounter, but there, there must have been some horrific incidents that you ran into that, that stuck with you, as you as you mentioned earlier, that would assault your psyche. How, how did you get over that at the end of the shift?
2: Yeah, um, the things we see as EMPs and paramedics uh, and park rangers. They can be traumatic. They can be horrific, um, you know, body recoveries, you know, amputations, um, you know, really bad motor vehicle accidents. And for some reason, I think just when you're in a national park, you're more in the present moment. So, and also the people you're responding to, they're like you, you know, they love the outdoors. So there is that connection with the patient, even though you don't know them. And so I think the trauma of these calls hits you a little bit deeper because you are out in this beautiful place and, you know, people are out there trying to have a vacation and then something horrific goes on. So this is a huge uh, issue all across the nation. Um, Unfortunately, first responder suicide is the leading cause of death for firefighters, police officers, EMTs, um, more so than line of duty deaths. So these things, they can stick with you and they can start to build up and you might not even know it until sort of it's too late. Um, So as far as how I dealt with that, When these bad calls started to sort of collect in my psyche, um, I just, I tried to seek help and learn more about, you know, post-traumatic stress through podcasts, uh, through books, and I found journaling, was helpful. And then the best treatment for me was just getting out into the resource, getting out in nature and hiking and just kind of connecting to something bigger and larger than myself. And I found that was a great way to sort of transition post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth.
1: That's oh, got to be a, a trying phase to, to go through on a, on a regular basis. Was there any one incident that has stuck with you through the years?
2: I think some of the miraculous saves. I mean, we you have the tough calls and, you know, I responded to like a snowmobile or fatality Um, just outside of Grand Teton. So you have the the traumas and the body recoveries, but ultimately what keeps us in this profession is the miraculous saves. Um, So at Yosemite, you know, there was one search and rescue mission that lasted two days and we finally located the missing hiker and he was just not doing well. And it was just this amazing collection of volunteers and park rangers and paramedics everyone just kind of banding together to help save one life. And we did save his life, uh, which was amazing. So that, that definitely sticks with me uh, just because, you know, the, the idea of an outcome wasn't looking good, but we kind of turned the corner and made it happen.
1: Yeah. That was an amazing case that you related in the book.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then, uh yeah.
1: There was another one in, in Yosemite that that must have struck you for for a while. Um, I, I think it was a 37 year old father in the the lodge Yosemite Lodge who had a stroke. Something you wouldn't expect for um, an individual of that age reading reading a book to his kids.
2: Yep, that was definitely one of you know the saddest calls I've been on, and um, strokes are very tough for the family and for the EMS providers because the person can be suffering the stroke and mentally they can be with it, but they might not so they know what's going on, but they n- might not be able to talk or move their extremities. And you know, this call came in for a 37-year-old man with stroke-like symptoms. And we were just thinking, hey, maybe his blood sugar's low, uh, maybe he's dehydrated, maybe he's, you know, overdosed on a wrong medication. And That was our hope and when we got there none of those things checked out and he did have obvious stroke-like symptoms and so again we all just banded together and we launched a helicopter within three minutes of arriving on scene and then we drove to the landing zone right as the helicopter was landing so ultimately the outcome with this gentleman wasn't what we wanted but we were comforted in knowing that we gave the best care, you know, with strokes, they say time is brain, you know, or loss of brain, but you know, we were on top of everything and we checked every box. We did everything we could do. And so, um, the outcome wasn't what we wanted, but we knew we gave him the best possible care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. at the end of each day, um, you sit around, you talk about the the cases you responded to and kind of do a, uh, 360 degree review on uh, what we did and what might we have done, or did we get it all right?
2: Correct. Yeah. We're we're always debriefing after a call and doing what we call an after action review just to see where we can improve. Um, So that always helps. And we do it as close to the finish of the call as we can. Um, And then another thing to just help is just that National Park Service family of volunteers and trail crew and We would have like potlucks pretty much every night. And so if you did have a tough call, just reconnecting with that National Park Service family really helped you kind of recover from a difficult call.
1: Now, from your time in the parks, what conclusions did you reach about park visitors who found themselves in your care? I mean, by that, a former ranger once told me that many people who go on vacation in the park system often put their brains on vacation. And you kind of alluded to that earlier when you said some people want to take a vacation from the medication. Did you get that sense in terms of situations people got themselves into that they kind of put their brains on vacation to a certain degree?
2: I think it can happen. And I think it's unintentional. It's, you know, the surroundings are so beautiful and magnificent and people get so excited and you know, the trail is beckoning and so they want to just keep going, maybe forgetting that they only have a small little bottle of water. And um, so I don't think it's intentional. I think the landscape almost like intoxicates people and they forget uh, about things like taking medications or bringing water, or the appropriate clothing. So I think a lot of that has to do with it. And so our job is, you know, just to educate the visitor and a lot of parks like grand canyon and yosemite they have like preventative search and rescue so they're positioning people at you know south rim of the grand canyon before they hike down and just letting them know the dangers and so again that idea of prevention is the best medicine
1: yeah for sure any advice you would have for park visitors to stay safe
2: i would say you know, I think another thing that I hadn't mentioned is the sort of like the the Disney Disneyification of animals. That you know, a lot of times people watch these shows and the animals appear almost like big stuffed animals. So, especially Yellowstone, you know, just I'd like to just remind people that the animals are wild and you know, stay twenty five to one hundred yards away from them and you know, things like that. And then if you're hiking, always pack like the 10 essentials and, you know, look at the weather reports. Uh, If you're in, you know, some of these parks with grizzly bears, always have bear spray. And then yeah, check in at the visitors centers, get the updated conditions of the trails and the weather. And, you know, we're all here to help people enjoy the park. And a large part of that is having a safe visit for everyone.
1: You know, Kevin, you you spent these years as a, a seasonal paramedic, um, and you've turned into a writer. Why? Why did you write this book?
2: For me, writing is an act of celebration, and when you write a memoir, it's your story. But the inspiration to write the story is always someone or something outside of yourself. So, Wild Rescues was inspired by the park rangers I worked with, the volunteers, the firefighters, and I just saw something that was very unique and special and amazing and i wanted to share that with readers and so that was my main motivation and then you know entertain readers and then also kind of just give them a first ever look at wilderness medicine and just the side of the park service that many people might not know exists because luckily they haven't encountered a bad situation while they're in the national parks So sort of a a blend of education and entertainment was my hope with the book.
1: Okay. And and maybe an outlet.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, when you create a narrative about an experience, it lends, it gives it meaning and it gives it shape. And that's certainly part of it. And I know some of the difficult calls I wrote about, there was sort of a healing process and kind of getting them on the page and, you know, hopefully, People can learn from certain experiences, and you know maybe it might prevent that happening again in the future. Well, good.
1: I'm, I'm glad we could catch up, and um, it, it's it's an enjoyable book. I mean, it's a quick read, as as one of the reviewers said, and um, I think it's going to be a, a very well received by the general public. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. It sounds like you found yourself quite the rewarding career, and you're doing a great job helping people get the most out of their park vacation.
2: All right. Thank you so much for having me and have a
1: great day. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be traveling to eastern Wyoming to tour the grounds of Fort Laramie National Historic Site with a park ranger well familiar with the rich Western history that the fort witnessed dating back to 1834. For the traveler, this is Kurt Repincheck. See you in the parks.